<laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the other thing is, is that when they started it, I mean, Star Trek had been off the air for what, 15 years, 20 years? Yeah, 20, yeah. 20 years. 20. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 171 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And we have a special guest this week, and that's Andy Ron. Hello. Did I say your name right? Yeah, you did great. Thanks. All right. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Sure. About myself? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, I actually work for Icon Factory. Uh, it's a company that does uh, icon design, app design, and also app development. Um, most of the designers are in North Carolina, but I work with our development team here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We work out of a co-working space called Coco, and we do a variety of mobile app development for a bunch of different clients. Prior to coming here last fall, I actually was at Adobe for about 15 years, and there I worked on a variety of apps. Most of my time I spent working on Lightroom and a couple other photography apps. Very cool. Yeah, we had Dylan and Dustin Bruznak on the show a while back. So, Yep, yep. I work for them now. That was a memorable show. Those, <laughs> those two can talk. <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful not to sit between the two of them because uh, you get it from both sides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that episode. Yep. So are, are you, what, do you, what kind of development do you do? Pretty much what anyone will hire us to do, but lately I've been working on an iOS app in Swift. That's actually a, a dating app a client's having us build. And earlier this year, I was working on a, a transit app for Android, and I, uh, that's where I discovered Kotlin. And so just learning those two languages, this is the first time I've written an app for either of those languages. It was really interesting seeing the parallels. And earlier this year, at there's a developer conference in the Twin Cities called mini bar and i just threw together a talk that kind of compared the two languages to present there and that's where jame who is regularly on your podcast found out about my interest in that topic so it's kind of how it all ties together yeah jame cool. lined this up and then he bailed on us well yeah he's at he's at 360 idev i guess right he said the conference i didn't check into which ones we're running but I yeah. bet it's 360i dev that's going on right now. Well, so what you mentioned you were at Adobe before. What were you doing? What languages and frameworks and, and such were you using before you started doing Swift and Kotlin? Well, Lightroom is actually a little bit unique in Adobe's app portfolio because it's written largely in a language called Lua, which uh, you may or may not have ever heard of. It's similar to JavaScript. It's actually been used in a fair lot of Video games, I know World of Warcraft, for example, uses Lua. It's a scripting language, but it does compile down to a bytecode. And so 
that was just kind of special feature of how Lightroom was put together. I think I actually remember hearing early on in the, you know, when Lightroom was older than it, or sorry, newer than it is now that they were using Lua, but I'd forgotten that. It was interesting at the time because I don't think I had heard of, of Lua before that. Yeah, Lua, I mean, it was, we started Lightroom about 10 years ago, actually more than that now. And at the time, Lua was really far ahead, I think, in terms of some of the language features. It had closures, which was really a, a neat feature of the language. And, uh, but it was also a very simple language in terms of some, having a very small set of defined data structures. And so that made it, at least we thought, made it you know, easy to learn and yet very powerful. Obviously, as we started developing that app, the, the, we built our own complexity. So you always have to be on the guard for that. Yeah, right. But other than Lua, obviously, Adobe's most of apps are, are either built in C++ or in the kind of default language of the platform. So Java for Android or Objective-C for iOS and Mac. So how did you discover Kotlin? Actually, it was a friend of mine who, who suggested when I was kind of doing some research on Android, actually a guy from the Lightroom dev team, Matthew Johnson, he said, you know, like all the cool kids are using Kotlin, you should, you should give it a try. And at the time I started our Android project, you know, Android did not support the latest language features from Java. So specifically, it didn't have any kind of closures or blocks. And... I just know from experience that writing everything as an anonymous inner class is a really verbose way to go. So that right away was a very appealing feature of the language that you could be a little more concise in how you write your code. But actually, it's, it's interesting. The more I learned about Kotlin, the kind of their whole philosophy is one of, you know, can we make it easier to be more concise with expressing what you want to accomplish? And so even though today they do have support in Android for uh, JavaScript, 1.7 and some features of Java 1.8, including closures now, I still think Kotlin's an interesting uh, language because of the other things that they've done on top to make it more concise and easy to use. So you gave us a whole bunch of information comparing Kotlin to Swift. And I think that's part of what would be interesting, at least to our audience, is what do I already know that's going to make development on Android easier? Without having yeah. to go to one of these cross-platform systems like React Native or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that actually is one of the appealing things as well for me. Because in switching between these two projects, I kept finding things. And it, it was really funny. Like Sometimes the differences are so small, it's literally the difference between like a colon or the little hyphen greater than arrow symbol. Uh -huh. Other times, syntax is exactly the same. So I think for someone who knows Swift already and is being called upon to develop something in, in Android, then this would be a good language for them to, to look at. I'd like to back up just a little bit and, and give maybe more of a beginner overview because our audience is a bunch of iOS developers and they a lot of them probably have not done Android development and have never heard of Kotlin in the first place. So can we talk a little bit about what Kotlin is and, and who's responsible for it and, and you know how it's getting used and whatever? Sure. Yeah, so for a Swift developer who's who's maybe going to consider building an Android application, the first thing you do is you look at Java. That's how Google put together the API for Android. But Kotlin is actually a new language that was put together by JetBrains. That's actually the company that produces the the IDE that you build Android apps in. Android Studio is built on top of the, the JetBrains um, IDE, and those uh, that company produced this new language, Kotlin which is 
little simpler than Java. It's more efficient. And it actually has uncanny similarity to Swift. So um, there's actually a bunch of features in common that are almost exactly the same or just slightly different than Swift. And that that's what makes, I think, Kotlin a really interesting language for an iOS developer who already knows Swift to get their feet wet on Android. The learning curve should be a little bit you know, shallower. So you mentioned that, that it's something JetBrains came up with, but then Android Studio is built on JetBrains. So I sort of wonder what Google's relationship to or you know, support of Kotlin is like. I, I don't actually know. You know, that's one of the interesting things about this topic is I am also kind of an outsider. So I'm not an expert on Kotlin or what its, its history is. I know it's been around for a number of years. And I would assume that Google doesn't have any problem with it. And really, there's no reason they should because at the end of the day, Kotlin compiles to the exact same bytecode that Java does. So as far as an Android device or any Java virtual machine, in fact, would know, it is just regular Java code. So there's, there's really no problem with, with using it. And it's not the first language that's ever worked that way. There's also JRuby and Groovy and a bunch of other languages that compile down to Java bytecode like that. Yeah, in fact, I think Ruby Motion takes advantage of the fact that you can essentially write stuff out or write Ruby code and then use JRuby to run it on the JVM. And yeah, there, yeah, there are other systems out there. I'm trying to remember the other one because there was another system that ran on Android that was specifically a flavor of JRuby. And so, yeah, any language that can run on the JVM runs fine on Android and you can write your apps in it and you have all the interoperability that you would expect. You can use all the Java libraries and everything else. Yeah. In fact, there's even a, a version of Lua like to go full circle here. Uh, there's like JLua was something someone had created, which compiles down to Java bytecode. But I don't think that project was continued. Um, I, I did look at it once. I guess what I was getting at is that, I mean, this, the situation is sort of the same on iOS. There are actually a lot of languages that you can use on iOS, including Ruby through Ruby Motion and, uh, you know, Xamarin lets you use C Sharp. And I don't know, I'm sure there are lots of others that I'm not thinking of right now. Uh, but there, but certainly none of those really have Apple's official blessing, except for C, C++, Objective-C, and Swift. I guess what I was getting at is, is Google going to adopt Kotlin as sort of a real first-class thing, or is it always going to be sort of this third-party thing JetBrains is doing. It seems like it's maybe a little half and half right now because Android Studio is sort of a JetBrains thing, but it's also the official way to write Google or to write Android apps now. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, obviously, anytime you deviate from the exact garden path that the primary, you know, developer has laid out for you, you're taking a small chance that, you know, you might not be in a happy place several years from now. But given that Android Studio is built on JetBrains product, it seems as though that can, relationship between Google and them is already really close. So I didn't really have too much concern about using it. Yeah, I hope. I mean, uh, I think there are a lot of us that hope that in the same way that Apple after, well, really, I mean, the history of Objective-C goes back a really long time. But after a long time with Objective-C, Apple has come out with Swift and kind of moved to replace it with a modern language. And I think there are, there are some people that, that hope Google will do the same thing and maybe Kotlin is it. That's that's sort of what I'm hoping. It could be. Or it could be something Kotlin-like that's even better. Yeah, there, there was some rumor about Swift, uh, Google looking at Swift actually, which is interesting and I was sort of skeptical of, but it would be cool. Yeah, the thing is though, is that there are certain advantages that you have to adopting something like the JVM, 
where there's now a standard way to allow people to write whatever language they want and then just have it run there. So I don't know. I mean, I could see them adopting Kotlin and then just leaving it running on the JVM and saying, look, the JVM is sort of the the low level standard and then you can use any JVM language to write it. Yeah, that's a, that, there's an, there's, I mean, there's a lot of argument there. I would argue that some of Android's real shortcomings are because they use the JVM. Although you can that's write, fair. you can write, uh, what do they call it? There's a, there's a word for their version of, of their framework. So you Dalvik. can write in C and C++. No, no, Dalvik's their VM, but yeah. they have native something or other. Anyway, you can write oh, C. Yeah, yeah it's, it's essentially the JNI. It's not much different than Java's way of doing native. Yeah, the, the one holdback I would say in the JVM is you can't really fundamentally change how uh, classes work. And that's one of the places where Swift and Kotlin deviate is Swift actually introduces enums and structs that have value semantics. And I don't think that's something that you could add to the JVM. Not that I'm an expert on how JVM works, but, but it, from what I've seen, everything there is an object and everything there is, is you know, garbage collected as an object. So adding in a, a complex value semantics you know, maybe is something you couldn't do on top of the JVM. So one thing that I'm curious about is the JVM is garbage collected. And in Swift, you basically have ARC, automatic reference counting. And I'm wondering, is there really that much nuance? I mean, I know they work differently, but do you find that, you know, they're, one is more performant than the other or is a little easier to reason about than the other? Or is it mostly just the stuff goes away when it's not being used and you don't really have to think about it or what? It's almost that good. The one caveat would be, you know, if you write a lot of blocks or, or call closures, you do have to be careful in Swift because a lot of times you're creating closures and attaching those onto, you know, your view controller or something either directly or indirectly. And if you don't remember to mark self as weak in those cases, you can create a reference cycle. And that'll prevent those things from being released. So you do have to be careful to still annotate with weak in Swift. The compiler helps you because in blocks, you can't just reference a property on self without explicitly saying self dot. And as long as you get in the habit of realizing, oh, I had to say you know, self dot, I should be aware that I'm creating a reference to, to self here and, and perhaps add you know, weak or unknown to that. That's really the only place that I even see any difference. Obviously, in a garbage collector world, you don't have to worry about that. So you just don't even have that in Kotlin. Right. I mean, that said, I'll be honest. You, the more you have a deep understanding of how systems work, the more you're going to avoid those like edge cases where things go bad. And that's just the fact of life for any developer. So, yeah, if you not really think about the fact that Kotlin's garbage collected, you might find yourself in a situation where things just disappeared because you know you didn't actually anchor them to anything and they got collected and that could cause kind of weird unexpected behavior but that's just the cost of doing business you got to have that kind of understanding so yep i'm also curious so let's say that i'm coming to this from swift and i'm thinking okay well kotlin sounds good cuz i don't really want to go figure out you know the quirks of this particular version of java that doesn't have all these nice features in it uh, what am i going to see in kotlin that makes me go oh I like that. Or, oh, this is very familiar. I think first you'd notice all the things that are familiar. So like if you decide to, you know, 
add methods to a class. Like it's almost exactly the same syntax as Swift. The only difference is like they use the keyword fun instead of funk. So that's just one character different. You can add properties to classes in very much the same way. I think even uh, the switching from using a colon to the arrow is just about exactly the same as, as Swift. Declaring blocks is almost the same, except the arguments go in parens outside the curly braces. So it's, it's just a slightly different syntax. But other than that, they behave almost exactly the same. One of the things about Kotlin is that they seem to have given you a lot of ways to do things with the idea being that in some cases, it makes your code really short. Like if you have a function that just calls another function, you can add that as a member to your class just by doing what looks like an assignment. You basically say this function equals that function. And what that means is you're, you know, you're just going to call that other function. In Swift, there's no such optimizations. You actually have to put a curly brace and call the other function. It's mm -hmm. you know three lines instead of one. The downside of that is, you know, I suppose if you got into someone else's Kotlin code, you might be like, whoa, what's going on? Because there, there are multiple ways to get things done. So pros and cons there on that, I guess. You know, one of the other things that's, that's nice about Kotlin is they introduce their own sort of primitive types. So much like Swift has array and map uh, and set instead of the NS variants of all those types, you just feel as though you're dealing with a native natural language container. And Kotlin has that as well. The downside of that is you're still talking to an existing Java or you know, Objective-C in Swift's case, API. And that API probably wasn't written in Swift or Kotlin. It was written in the original language for the framework. And so you do have to bridge across from you know, these nice friendly types that the new language gives you into the original type. And, and both languages do a pretty good job of that. It's actually really pretty seamless. The only sort of rough spot I ran into was in Kotlin. It's not really Kotlin's fault. It's just that Java actually has a lot of kind of linear sequence types, be it array or list. And list is in an uh, interface in Java. And then there's several actual implementations like array list and so forth. And so unfortunately, a lot of the APIs are sometimes written in terms of these different types. So you have to take your Kotlin array or list and turn it into an array list or uh, an actual Java array or something. And there's ways to do all that. Usually that's just a method you call at the end, turns one into the other. But it, it does kind of get to be kind of hair-raising. You, you think, like, how many different ways? <laughs> like, I've, I just have 10 integers in a row. Like, how many different ways am I going to represent that in this one program? I, I feel like Swift actually has a little bit of the same problem in that there are, there are a lot of different sequence types. There's collection and sequence and, you know, array and array slice. And they're all, some are yeah. protocols and some are, well, structs. And, and then you throw in bridging. Anyway, I don't know. That's tripped me. That same sort of area has tripped me up in Swift. I was actually going to ask, my, my next question was going to be about, about bridging, which you already started talking about, but how is interacting with the, the Android APIs, which are, of course, Java APIs from Kotlin? And then another thing that going along with that, in, in Objective-C, Apple has actually made some changes to Objective-C specifically so that it bridges more nicely into Swift. And I, I take it that JetBrains can't do that, right? They can't induce Google to 
add new features to Java just so that Kotlin works better. So I wonder if there are any rough edges along those lines because because of the lack of uh, support in Java for Kotlin. Yeah, you you actually you nailed it on the head. Fortunately, you know the JVM is is pretty explicit about how its APIs work. So even though Kotlin is consuming you know, the API as basically a dot class file for all the, the things that say you're calling or you're, uh, you're subclassing. There are cases where the Kotlin language is trying to help you and it, it really can't make the right choice. So for example, Kotlin, just like Swift, has uh, explicit uh, treatment of nullability. So in Kotlin, things can't just be null willy-nilly. You have to declare them using the question mark just like you do in Swift. However, if you're you know, implementing a, a fragment and you are overriding one of the, the methods, Kotlin can't tell in that context if any of the arguments coming in are nullable. So it'll put question marks on all of them. So that's not a problem, except now when you go to implement that method, you have to deal with checking for null on all those, which it ex- makes you do explicitly as a compile error to access something that could be null. So you can you can do that, but then like, what do you just abort? Like if, like sometimes these parameters like are guaranteed to be there. That's what the Android API says. Well, you can actually go through and delete the question mark off the declaration of the overridden method and it will still compile. But if you made a mistake and it turns out that it could be null, it'll then crash at runtime. So that's like the one place where I really got bitten because like I ended up just deleting question marks off the, all these things because it was ridiculous. Like, you know, you just don't expect the, uh, the system to call you with null arguments on some fundamental part of how your application works. But you do have to be careful because in some cases, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what method on the fragment I ran into this, this with, but sometimes they can be null. So that's one place. Oh, that's re- that's really interesting. So the Swift was the same way in in one I, I don't remember right. exactly, but Objective C did not have nullability when Swift first came out, and so I think they imported Objective C methods with exclamation points, or so implicitly unwrap, which is kind of it sounds like the same thing as deleting all the question marks. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And, and and I would say the the biggest improvements in Swift was not just the new features they put in one 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 two, but really the improvements to the SDK that made it work better. Yeah, and then of course adding generics to Objective C, which Java already has generics, right? So yeah, so that's you know that there's no direct analog there. But I've actually spent the morning teaching a room full of Swift programmers who have never done Objective C, Objective C, and it's it's kind of it's been nice that that Apple has evolved Objective C in concert with Swift so that they bridge really nicely together. Yeah, I think the integration there is is really well done. I kind of think a language is is only as good as its tooling. I'm not really the type that thinks a language is great if I have to write the whole thing in Vim and run a compiler on the command line and get no code completion and no debugger and that kind of thing. So I'm curious to know how the situation there is for Kotlin. I mean, it's JetBrains and they make IDEs, so I have a feeling I know the answer, but I, I want to hear from you. Yeah, no, it's it's really, really well done. And in fact, uh, in flipping back to to Android from Xcode after, you know, being away for a while. Uh, it's, I think it's better than Xcode in a lot of ways. The editor is really solid. It has a gajillion features. I mean, they spell check your comments for, for gosh sake. They'll even spell check the inner cap words in your variable names, which, which you can turn off because maybe that's 
but right. you know, if you're one of these people who like to get to zero warnings, you have to spell everything right by, by golly. The other thing is their compiler is, is much faster than the Swift compiler. That's really one of the big pain points I have with, with now writing a, a you know, medium-sized iOS app entirely in Swift is it takes a while, you know. That boy, you switch to an Objective C project, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, it's so fast yeah. to compile now." Yeah, and I, I, it's getting better, but still a long way to go. I definitely know what you mean. Yeah, and then also the integration with the other parts of the IDE are are pretty good. The debugger in Android Studio really, it's kind of hard to use. It's it's got a lot of tabs. Like every edge of the window has tabs. So there's like tabs on the left, on the top, on the bottom. And then even the, the, the bottom panel that you can tab between has its own internal tabs on the left of that panel. So it's, it's kind of a, a very confusing interface until you work your way through all that. That's not strictly limited to Kotlin though. It, it's just, that was just hard for me to learn how to use well. There's some other idiosyncrasies just in, in terms of that whole experience, like the, the build messages go in one panel, the runtime messages go into a different one and then the the android log messages go into a third window and it's not always clear like when something's going wrong where the clues are going to be so you end up kind of looking through all these places to find out what happened whereas it seems like xcode has a little more consolidated view of of you know your runtime messages at least how is the testing story on kotlin so like unit testing yeah yeah it's built right in it it works just fine. I haven't actually written any tests in Java, so I can't really say if, if the experience is unique to Kotlin. I think it's actually just Java or Kotlin both uh, work pretty well. There's a little testing panel that kind of comes in the middle there and it lists your tests if they pass or fail and you can rerun just one test. It's probably about on par with the testing support in Xcode. I think both of them are kind of uh, fiddly at times, but for the tests that I did write, it was, it was pretty straightforward. So if you've been writing Swift for any length of time at all, you know that Swift is changing and evolving really quickly. And yeah, we're about to have the biggest change yet with Swift 3.0 coming out in uh, probably you know a month, month or so here. What about Kotlin? I, Kotlin's older than Swift, so I, I think maybe it's more mature. But is it is it also changing quickly or is it fairly stable? I have not really seen any like breaking changes come along in the last you know nine months that I've been playing with it. So on the one hand, it seems like it's it's pretty stable. On the other hand, when I think about kind of what is Kotlin's role in the Java ecosystem, particularly in light of Android adopting more of the modern features of Java 1.7 and 1.8, you know, does it does it actually provide enough differentiation as it is today versus those to justify sticking around? And if it doesn't, is it going to either kind of fade away or are they going to make some more like leaps forward to say, look, we're once again way different than Java. Because I could see it kind of going both ways. And it's kind of exciting to think that it could be more of the bleeding edge that, you know, maybe there'll be some other new advancement in the language that you would get available first there. Because at least in my experience, it doesn't seem like Oracle is like really pushing the Java language forward very quickly anymore. So if if there's going to be innovation, it may well have to come uh, from an outside firm like that first. So that would be my best guess. Okay, that's interesting. It's actually, I don't know. I don't know if it was the answer I was expecting or not. I, it's, it's funny because you've talked about how, how similar Swift and Kotlin are, but 
Swift's moving fast and adopting new features faster than Kotlin. That may not be true, as true forever. I mean, some of the core syntax stuff's not going to change, but... Yeah, part of me would love it if they would actually align on some of the core syntax because some of the differences are so small that part of me is like, oh, come on, can't you just, you know, align on that? You could almost make like a regex preprocessor that would make, you know, some kind of subset that you could convert into either. It's that close. But, you know, one other thing I, I didn't mention about Kotlin, which, which is this, this part of their project is a little further behind, but they do actually have a transpiler that, that turns Kotlin into JavaScript. So one of the other interesting opportunities in Kotlin is that you could potentially say you have a Node.js backend to an app that has the service. You could potentially write some parts of your model in Kotlin and run the same code in both uh, server and client. And I feel like that's one of these kind of holy grail moments that a lot of different people are circling around, right? You mentioned Xamarin, you could do that with C Sharp, but you know, Xamarin isn't really like how maybe a lot of people want to write their native apps. And then you got React Native with JavaScript. So this is maybe another possible future for Kotlin there. Yeah, that is interesting. Swift, there, there's some Swift transpiler that came out in the last week or so. Very, very unfinished, but I think it's called shift, shift.js, something like that. Oh, really? That's Try cool. to find it and then pick it. But anyway, so somebody's doing the same kind of work on, on Swift. Is that, a, is that a, a JetBrains project or is it a third-party thing? No, JetBrains is doing it, but they're a little bit behind. They're probably they're, they're like figuring out and pioneering the features on the Java side first, and then once the dust has kind of settled... I guess the Java team follows on behind. Maybe that's how they do it. I'm curious about some of the more, maybe, I don't know, I guess you'd call them more advanced features of Swift and, and by comparison, Kotlin. So Swift has some things like generics and really deep support for protocols and um, some stuff yeah. that's maybe as advanced but not as often used like tuples. And then I think coming in the future to Swift will be, uh, one thing I'm particularly curious about is a built-in primitives for doing asynchronous programming which is not nailed down at all but has been talked about for swift yeah so we can think about those so generics uh let's start with obviously java has generics and kotlin has them as well i would say that the generics work pretty well in both Swift and Kotlin in a similar way when you're talking about just having a generic type on a class or something. Swift takes it much further, particularly when you start mixing in extensions and protocols and how you can extend some generic types or you know implement additively kind of combine and extend things. And frankly, that area of Swift, I'm not very good at. It seems like every time I try to go down the road of like, oh, I'll take this generic type and this protocol and this extension, I end up with like a different error message every time I try it. Sometimes it's a linker error. Sometimes it's a compiler error. A lot of times the compiler will just crash. It's been a kind of a frustrating part of Swift for me. And I see people using it and it obviously can be done, but it seems kind of like black magic to me. So... Well, you're not alone. I feel like I've, uh, you know, overall pretty competent programmer. I've been doing this for a while and I always try to get clever and swift. And then now some 
this or that and protocol associated types and blah, blah, blah. And then I go find some thread on the Swift mailing list where they're talking about, yeah, we're going to fix this in the future. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really help me now. And so I'm more and more kind of avoiding some of that fancy stuff. I know. Yeah. So that's been my experience too. So Kotlin can't provide a lot of that because pretty much all the stuff they're doing obviously has to just compile down to regular code. So you, you can sort of extend in some small ways types, but really all it is is kind of a, a compile time helper code. So it requires on compile time analysis to be able to make these things available to you. It's essentially a static analysis kind of thing. So it, you, you can't feed, you know, like a Java Lang object that happens to be an instance of whatever class and expect the extension on that to be picked up. It has to know at compile time that whatever type that is had this extended method on it or something. So that's kind of the limit of what Kotlin's able to do in terms of extending things. So I guess it protects you from some of some of these crazy weird problems that we were finding in, in Swift. I, I don't think that Kotlin would be able to do much more with that without, you know, some fundamental changes to the JVM or something. I mean, Mm-hmm. They're obviously very clever people. Maybe they'll find a way, but that seems to be the limit. Maybe with reflection, though. I mean, it does seems like there's always a way sometimes. Uh, then you mentioned uh, like tuple. That's kind of one of my favorite little fun features of Swift. It's a great way for just kind of throwing values around. If you have you want to return two things from this method, you don't have to create a specific structure to contain them and put them in there. Kotlin doesn't have true tuple support, but it does have this thing called pair, which they have a language keyword called two to construct a pair. And so sometimes if you just want to return things, you two things, you can just say, you know, A to B, and it'll return a pair of A and B. And obviously you could create a pair with a pair in it by saying A to B to C. You might have to use parens, I guess, to know what you meant there, but that's probably not really the best pattern in the world because people will be looking at your code going, what? Yeah, and of course, in Swift, tuples can have up to, I don't know, what is it, six elements or something like that? And You know, I've never, run, I've never run into the upper limit, so I don't know. I think there is an upper limit, if I, if I remember right, but no, I've never hit into it either. And the other thing you can do in Swift, I don't know if you knew this, is you can actually name the arguments in your tuple. So rather than just having three things and relying on the order, you can actually say foo colon thing, bar colon thing, whatever. Yep. So I've used that, and but that that's sort of like a basically that's like a, a struct that's just declared in line instead of you know declared anywhere else. And I kind of at some point you're like, well, for two maybe that's okay. If I've got six named parameters, maybe I should just make a struct. You know? Yeah. No, I I definitely agree with you. One of the things that I I've been using both Kotlin and Swift in combination with is this thing called reactive extensions. And you'd asked about the async keyword, and I guess one of the reasons that I I hadn't been paying much attention to the async stuff that may be coming in a future version of Swift as I've been spending a lot of time thinking about reactive extensions. And the cool thing is Kotlin and Swift both have really good implementations of reactive extensions. So it's essentially a library that once you learn it in one, translates over to the other just about like 85, maybe 90%. Some of the methods aren't named exactly the same thing, which just drives me nuts, but by and large, they're, they're almost exactly the same. And in reactive extensions, you do a whole lot of chaining of 
a little piece, a snippet of code in a closure that returns some values. And then another snippet of code that takes those values as inputs and returns some more values. And in that context, these little uh, ad hoc tuples are really handy because sometimes you need to return two or three things. But you're literally only using it in the context of these two blocks that are implemented next to each other. So having a struct declared you know, way at the top of the file or something just for that purpose would be really annoying. One of the things about Swift that has made it a little difficult for me as, I mean, not difficult, but as, uh, you know, somebody coming to the language, you know, is learning it either for the first time or whatever. A lot of the resources that are out there are in Objective-C, a lot of the iOS resources. So sample code and Stack Overflow questions and stuff. That's changing pretty rapidly but yeah it's amazing uh, how fast it's changing yeah i what's the story on kotlin is it does it have a good community around it so i have to admit most of the sample code i find is still written in java one of the features of the ide believe it or not is actually a really compelling java to kotlin converter so a lot of times you can just copy some sample code that was in java and just paste it in and say convert syntax. I mean, you might have to create like a new Java file or something, but if it was a sizable chunk of code that you don't want to just retype, it actually can convert it for you. And it's it's a pretty straightforward conversion. It's not like sometimes these converters do a horrible job, right? This is more or less pretty much straight up. So that makes this problem of, you know, are the examples in the web Kotlin or Java a little less of a big deal? Good. No, it's cool. Uh, what, do you, what do you think just adoption-wise? I mean, Swift, I don't know. I don't have real numbers, but certainly the vocal people in the community have basically all s- switched to Swift, and it's the thing people talk about. Nobody really talks about Objective-C anymore. I'm sure that's not true with Kotlin being a, a third-party thing instead of the mainstream um, way to do Android development. But is there, a, is there a good, serious community, and like, what percentage do you think of Android developers are using it? I don't have a really good estimate of that. I guess I'm still enough of a newbie, enough of a newbie. You know, I've only done Android for four or five months now, but I, I can't say for sure. But on the other hand, it seems like there was almost never a time when I didn't have a question or something that I didn't find a Stack Overflow thread or a discussion on a mailing list that, that pretty much addressed it. So I think there is a sizable body of people using it. Well, that's really what you care about, right? Is that yeah. there are enough people out there using it to solve problems that you don't have, so you don't have to solve them yourself. Yeah, fundamentally. Right. And obviously all the the libraries you might want to bring in, even if, if they're Java or they're Kotlin, you know, they all are going to work just fine. Um, that's all built into Android Studio. Basically, you can build in, well, I forget what their package manager is called. I'm blanking on that right now. Sorry, but you can just declare dependencies and it brings them in automatically, much like CocoaPods or Carthage or whatever. Very cool. Well, I hate to do it, but we got to get into picks. Andrew, do you want to start us off with some picks? Sure, I have three picks today. My first pick is going to be same th- one of the same things I picked last week. I'm going to keep talking about it until you're sick of hearing it or have all bought a ticket. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm teaching a, a five-day immersive workshop to learn how to do Mac development. If you're all, it's, it's meant for people who are already iOS developers. Come to Salt Lake for a week, learn how to do Mac development. It's a lot of fun. And you can actually make money doing it. We also have an online option. So if you can't come to Salt Lake, there's a ticket that lets you watch the sessions online and still participate and ask questions and whatever. And that is through a new thing that's that's starting up called Skillshop. So the website is skillshop.me. 
put a link in the show notes and I'm sure I'll be continuing to talk about it. Let's see. My second pick is going to be an episode of our podcast, episode 110. We already mentioned it earlier, but this was a episode we did with Dylan and Dustin Bruznak, also of, of the Icon Factory's development arm. We talked about the business of, of building apps and they were a lot of fun, hilarious, very talkative. They're brothers, uh, twins maybe. I can't remember, but yeah, I think um, they are. I, I have, oh, yeah, they're, they're definitely twins. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so, I mean, we've recorded a lot of episodes of iFreaks now and I can't honestly say that I remember every single episode that we recorded two years ago or whatever, but I definitely remember that one. So it's worth checking out. And then my last pick is one that has been on my mind a lot and is kind of uh, something I think a lot of us in the community are, are thinking of. And that is Daniel Steinberg, also known as at Dim Sum Thinking. He is a, a wonderful member of our community that has given a lot to us, is a really kind, caring, warm, good person that unfortunately has just experienced an incredible tragedy, the second one in his life, which is certainly way more than anyone deserves, certainly way more than anyone as good as he deserves. So please have Daniel in your thoughts. And more concretely, he has asked that his wife has just passed away. He's asked that donations be made in her name to a to a charity that I will post details about. Uh, we'll post details about in the show notes. Um, but really, this pick is just about think think about Daniel. Um, check out his talks. He's he's a wonderful person, and and we're all sort of thinking about him and and, and feeling terrible about what's happened to him. So those are my picks. All right. I've got a couple of picks. So the first pick I have is something that I use on the website a lot. In fact, I'm going to pick a couple of things that I have on, on devchat.tv. I've made a couple of changes. The first one is that you can get the conference recordings now on devchat.tv. So if you want to get iOS remote conf or freelance remote conf, uh, both of which were excellent, excellent content. I think freelance remote conf is probably one of the best conferences I've attended and I was very impressed with the content. So if, if you're freelance or thinking about freelancing, then definitely check it out. I've set up after the fact or you miss the conference tickets for the recordings and you just go to the, the page. If you go to devchat.tv slash conferences, that will get you access or that'll get that'll show you where they are. And then you can go from there. You can buy tickets. It's $100 per conference. The regular price tickets were two hundred dollars per conference. If that gives you an idea of of what you know what it cost uh, other people, but anyway, uh, terrific, terrific stuff. And uh, I'm also putting on a series of webinars. So if you go to devchat.tv/webinars, you'll be able to see that list as well and uh, get tickets for those. And finally, one of the things that I do to relax is I listen to audiobooks. Now I also do that to help move ahead with my business. So. You know, I listen to business books and self, self-improvement self books and things like that. But in this case, I've been listening to a fiction series that I read when I was in like junior high. Uh, it's called The Sword of Shannara. And anyway, it's just been nice to sit back and relax and listen to something that doesn't actually force me to engage my brain in the ways that I do when I'm working. So uh, I'm going to pick that as well. Andy, do you have some picks for us? Did we warn you about what picks are? Yeah, yeah, it was in your... Okay. So I have I have a couple. Well, I guess I already I alluded to some of them, but I think one has to be reactive extensions, which if you are dealing with asynchronous code and you are having trouble coordinating a whole lot of data coming into your system from different places, 
check out Reactive Extensions. It's available for Swift and Cocoa and Java and JavaScript. There's probably 10 or more languages that have it. It's some technology that came out of Microsoft. It's very powerful. It can be quite dangerous, I'll admit, but I think given the right application, it can really help increase reliability or code because it's much harder to make mistakes around like race conditions when you when you deal with code in a in the manner that they do. Another one that I would throw out there is if you live in the Twin Cities area anyway, we we recently have uh, started up our monthly uh, iOS and macOS developer kind of uh, get together once a month called Cocoa Heads. So I'd encourage people to look us up on the web and and if you want to just come here, just a local person talking about. Uh, various topics uh we hope to keep that going into the future and i'll expect oh i, I was just going to say i second that and i'll expand that to say that coco heads is a, a worldwide thing so even if you're not in the twin cities find find out if there's a chapter near you and and go coco heads has been super important and, and valuable to me that's right, a, right that's at- actually how i met andrew and rod who used to be on the show that's how i met him as well oh that's great yeah i, I guess you forget that it's it's more than your local chapter because those are the people you interact with. But yeah, obviously it is. It is. Yep. Uh, I guess uh, another one is I'm super excited about iOS 10 messages, apps, and stickers. And obviously, working for Icon Factory, we hope that um, you know we can have a hand in in that exciting new thing coming to iOS. So you know, check them out when. I guess it's sometime in September when that release comes out to your to your iPhone. Be on the lookout for that. Yeah, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago too. So if you're looking for a discussion about it, go check that out. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Perfect. So th- those are my picks. All right. Well, if people want to follow up with you, they want to see what you're working on or read blog posts or see what witty things you're putting up on Twitter, where do they go, Andy? You can find me on Twitter. I'm just Paddlefish. And obviously, you can reach us at iconfactory.com. All right. So one more question I have then. I'm sure there's a story behind your Twitter handle. Yes. In fact, prior to me joining uh, the world as a computer software developer, I was actually a biologist. And uh, I have a master's degree in fish physiology. (laughs) My master's degree project was studying North American paddlefish. It's a very interesting fish species. It gets to be about six feet long. It uh, looks a little bit like a shark, and it swims in the Missouri River in my home state of South Dakota. And that's that's where I found it. So that's my background and why I why I tend to pick to pick paddlefish anytime I can as a, a handle. Cool. Well, thank you for coming. We really appreciate this dive into Kotlin and hopefully there are some folks out there that were looking for an option for Android and go check it out. Well, thanks for having me. All right, we'll wrap this one up and we'll catch you all next week. Thanks, guys.